0: as we've traveled through the book of Genesis, we've kind of focused in on one particular individual and that is Abraham. And if there's one theme that we've been able to kind of trace through Abraham, it's that God accomplishes his will through broken and sinful people. Time and time again we see Abraham trying to make his own plans, trying to do his own thing, And yet God coming alongside and saying, even though you've done something, I've told you not to, even though you've decided to go your own pathway, I'm still going to accomplish my will through you. And today that is no different. And today we're going to look specifically at three movements of grace and how God accomplishes his promises through those. If you would stand with me, we're in Genesis chapter 21 this morning. Stand as you are able. I will read the entirety of the chapter for us, and we will ask for God's help this morning. Genesis chapter 21. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age. And she said, Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. And the child grew and was weaned, and Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar the Egyptian, whom she had borne whom she had borne to Abraham laughing. So she said to Abraham, Cast out this slave woman with her son. For the son of the slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. And the thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. But God said to Abraham, Be not displeased because of the boy, because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you. For though Isaac shall your offspring be named, I will make a great nation of the son of the slave woman also, because he is your offspring." So Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder along with the child, and sent her away. And she departed and wandered into the wilderness of Beersheba. When the water in the skin was gone, she put the child under one of the bushes. Then she went and sat down opposite him a good ways off, about the distance of a bow shot, for she said, "'Let me not look on the death of the child.' And as she sat opposite of him, she lifted up her voice and wept. And God heard the voice of the boy. And the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Up, lift up the boy and hold him fast in your hand, for I will make him a great nation. And then God opened her eyes and she saw a well of water. And she went and filled the skin with water and gave it to the boy to drink. And God was with the boy, and he grew up. He lived in the wilderness and became an expert with the bow. He lived in the wilderness of Paran, and his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. At that time, Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, said to Abraham, God is with you in all that you do. Now, therefore, swear to me here by God that you will not deal falsely with me or my descendants or with my posterity, but I have dealt kindly with you, so you will deal with me and with the land where you have sojourned. And Abraham said, I will swear. When Abraham reproved Abimelech about the well of water that Abimelech's servants have seized, Abimelech said, I do not know who has done this thing. You do not tell me. And I have not heard of it until today. So Abraham took sheep and oxen and gave them to Abimelech. And the two men made a covenant. And Abraham set seven ewe lambs of the flock apart. And Abimelech said to Abraham, What is the meaning of these seven lambs that you have set apart? And he said, These seven lambs you will take from my hand that, that this may be a witness for me that I dug this well. Therefore the place was called Beersheba, because both men swore an oath. So they made a covenant at Beersheba. Then Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of the army, rose up and returned to the land of the Philistines. And Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba and called thereon the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. And Abraham sojourned many days in the land of the Philistines. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. Our Father, we come to you as people who are weary, we are tired, perhaps discouraged. There's so much going on in our lives, around the world, in the news cycles that could cause distraction, that could cause us not to focus on your word. Father, we pray that this morning you would give us ears to hear, that our hearts would be softened to your word. That your spirit would move in us and convict us of the truth of this passage. Father, we need your help this morning. We pray all these things in your son's name. Amen. You may be seated. So as I said at the beginning, this is three movements of grace, three fulfillments of promises. And you can probably see those in your Bible, how those are divided up through the birth, birth of Isaac, the shipping away of Ishmael, and the promise Abraham makes with Abimelech. We're finally at the point where we've been waiting for a very long time since Genesis 12, the long-awaited arrival of Isaac. This is the whole point of the story we've been waiting on. Time and time again, God has reminded Abraham and Sarah that he was going to have a son with his wife, that no matter how long of time went by, God keeps reminding them, hey, I'm going to fulfill this promise that I made you. I made this covenant, and I'm going to keep it. Now, just so we're all on the same page, Abraham is 100 years old, and Sarah is 90, well beyond childbearing age. For the last 25 years, God has said to them, I'm going to give you a son. But we don't have to strain too hard because we've already read in the story about how Sarah had this bright idea of, well, maybe God didn't quite give us all the details. Maybe if you have a child with my servant Hagar, and she'll have a son named Ishmael, that's how God's going to bring fulfillment to this promise. It was a great idea. She's like, oh, here's how we're going to do it. But no, God reminds them in Genesis 17 after that debacle, and God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall, not, you shall now call her Sarah. Not call her Sarai, but call her name Sarah. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become and she shall bear great nations. Kings of people shall come from her. And what God's reminding them is that God's delays are not God's denials. They've been waiting 25 years to see this promise fulfilled. And they've failed on their side of this. God says, hey, I'm going to do this. But there's a delay in it. 25 years. I mean, Sarah's old when God makes that promise to her. She's even older now and just waiting But God's continual message to Abraham and Sarah has not changed despite their failing to trust God fully. He says, I will keep up my end of the bargain. Even though I know you're going to fail, I'm going to remind you yet again that my delays are not my denials. God is reminding them that the birth of Isaac will come. And here, finally, in this passage, after 25 years, God fulfills his promise. He gives them Isaac. But God makes it very clear in the first verse who it is that makes all of this possible. The Lord visited Sarah and he said, the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. Four times God mentions himself as the one who's making this happen. That it was impossible for Abraham and Sarah to make this child happen in their own will. That it took an outside force to make it happen. And God is telling them that God's love is unconditional even towards such fickle people. And that doesn't just go towards Abraham and Sarah. That goes towards you. It goes towards me. How often do we think that our ways are better than God's ways and we try to make our plan fit God's plan? And we find ourselves perhaps in the same place that Abraham and Sarah find themselves, wondering, God, why is this coming into my life? Why are you not answering these prayers that I am praying? And it's a reminder that God's delays are not God's denials. But that doesn't also mean that God is always going to give us everything that we ask for because his will is greater than our will. Now we, we find ourselves asking, is anything too hard for God? This statement must just make God laugh. And Sarah says in verse number six, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. God is further expressing that there is nothing too hard, that he is not held by the same constraints we are. And In this case, the impossibility of conceiving a child between the ages of 90 and 100. He's just reminding them, and now us, that there is nothing that is too difficult for God to accomplish. I mean, Sarah and Abraham are old. If my living grandparents were to tell us at the next family gathering that, hey, guess what? We're pregnant. We're expecting a child. There's going to be two responses. It's going to be really awkward silence, or there's going to be just an eruption of laughter. And this is kind of God's reminder to them by calling the child Isaac, whose name means laughter. Sarah's probably going to get some laughing at because God fulfilled that promise to her that she is really old, but she has born a son. These verses, if anything at all, remind us that even when we fail, God doesn't, despite the impossibility of God's promise. Truly impossible scientifically improbable that they would have a child, but God always fulfills what he promises. He never ever doesn't do what he has said that he will do. He will always fulfill his promises that he makes towards us, and the promises of God are meant to be a rock solid foundation that pushes us forward through life. The promises of God are meant to be an encouragement to us, And God's fulfillment of those promises are meant to be a promotion of our faith. When we see God work, that's meant to encourage us to grow in our faith. Ken Hughes puts it this way, and their faith went even deeper. From the onset, Abraham had believed God. That's why he left Ur and later gave Lot his choice of the land and then went after the kings of the north when they kidnapped Lot. But now Abraham was ascending to to such a level of unwavering belief in God. That now is Abraham's seeing the fulfillment of this promise that Isaac is finally born. He shouldn't have any lack of confidence that God's not going to do the other promises that he has made to him. Our God is trustworthy, and he will surely fulfill all the promises— even if we may have to wait for the resurrection of our earthly bodies to the heavenly kingdom for the fulfillment of this. Our God is faithful today to work in you and me to accomplish the promises that he's made to us, to cleanse us from sin, to supply us with everything that we need for our life and godliness. Know that like he did with Abraham and Sarah, God will come through for you and will complete the good work that he has begun in you. Philippians 1.6 says, And I am sure of this, that he, God, who began a good work in you, will bring it to completion at the day of Christ. But what you might find interesting, as I found interesting about this passage, is we finally get to the birth of Isaac that we've been waiting for since Genesis chapter 12, and it's just seven short verses in this whole chapter. The majority of this chapter isn't even about the birth of Isaac, which moves us to our second movement of grace that is Ishmael's abandonment and provision. We move quickly to see that Sarah isn't the only one who is laughing in this scene. We see that Ishmael is also sitting there at this party laughing. Remember that Ishmael is the son of Abraham and Hagar. This is Sarah's doing the servant of Sarah. Ishmael at the time, though, is not to be thought of as a child, but a more accurate type of him is as a teenager around the age of 16. His laughter is not a laughing like, oh, Sarah had a son, but no, his laughing is to be thought of as mocking. And it's understandably so. Young Ishmael felt jealousy at being displaced. He was prior to Isaac, the one who received Abraham's fatherly affection. And now here comes the new kid on the block stealing all of Abraham's love. Envy always magnifies the importance of the other and belittles our own. He's jealous of the fact that now Abraham's had a son through Sarah. And Ishmael is full aware of the promises that God has made. We can only guess What's going through Sarah's mind as she sees Ishmael laughing, far away off, mocking at them? I'm sure her imagination is running wild as she peers into the future and sees a life of torment with Ishmael tormenting, beating, mocking Isaac, threatening to steal his birthright, trying to become this great nation, and so her demand, which reminds you her demand for Abraham is what got them into the situation with Hagar in the first place, is that they're going to be cast out like dogs. She says, Abraham, I want nothing to do with Hagar and Ishmael. You need to get rid of them, kick them out. There's no room to think that Sarah is being righteous in her actions here. She has no affection, no love for Hagar and Ishmael. Even though they had been part of the family for years, we assume faithfully serving, God had brought them back to Abraham and Sarah. But she does not seem to care at all what happens to them. She just wants them out of sight, out of mind, no worries what happens to them. She wanted the problem uprooted and cast out. But this demand of Abraham was not well received. Abraham is... Distraught because Ishmael, although not the promised true heir of Abraham, is still his son. He still has affection for him. He cares about him because he is his own flesh, and God's intervention must have been the greatest comfort to him. We read in verse 12, "But God said to Abraham, be not displeased because of, what, because of the boy, And because of your slave woman, whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you. For through Isaac shall your offspring be named, and I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also, because he is your offspring. Abraham's breaking heart was comforted by the promise of the great future that awaited not one, but both of his boys that he is going to have two great nations come from him. Isaac was the one whom through the promise would be realized of a coming savior, but Ishmael would also be the father of a great nation. Both boys had great futures, and God was graciously addressing the self-created mess that Abraham and Sarah had made because he was taking up the tangled threads of his servant's life the mistakes that Abraham and Sarah had made, and he was weaving them into his own divine pattern to make something overruling everything for the good of mankind. He says, even though you mess up, I'm going to take your mistakes and I'm going to put those in my plan and I'm going to fulfill the promises that I have made to you. God is yet again accomplishing his will through broken and sinful people. Kent Hughes says again that the truth is without affliction and hardship, we would be trivial, superficial, flat-sided beings, people without depth or substance, with shallow faith. This truth is a life-changing revelation when taken to heart that God works in and through unpleasant parts of life to mature our faith. Take this to heart Abraham went through a lot of difficult trials through his life to get him to this point for the promise of Isaac and now another promise that God is going to make Ishmael a great nation. Abraham's gone through hardships and it's through these afflictions and hardships that God's making him more mature, more faithful to him. However, Abraham is not the only one concerned for Ishmael and his mother. Hagar and her son lost in the wilderness with no water left to drink. Remember, Abraham sends them with a loaf of bread and a sack of water. Not much to get very far, perhaps thinking like, well, if they're close enough, I can still provide for them in some way. We're meant to sympathize with this Egyptian servant's plight her abandonment of her youth under a bush, the retreat just far enough away to still see Ishmael, we're meant to feel sorrow for her. We're meant to feel her pain. And yet our sympathy is certainly not enough to help this poor mother. Only a heavenly intervention can rescue this family. And we take comfort in the fact that the Lord has a special place in his heart for the afflicted. Psalm 140, 12 says, I know that the Lord will maintain the cause of the afflicted and will execute justice for the needy. And we should not be amazed that he rescues Hagar and her son from starvation. His attitude towards Hagar and Ishmael is vastly different than Sarah's attitude towards them. Though he endorses Ishmael's removal He says, Abraham, do as your wife says, they can leave, send them away. Though he endorses it, and perhaps it's to eliminate the threat of Isaac's inheritance, the Lord does not share Sarah's cruel motivation. It's not that he has hatred and anger towards Hagar and Ishmael. This helps explain how the Lord works out his will, that God sovereignly ordains everything that happens including tragedy and hardship in our life. God sovereignly ordains everything that happens, including tragedy and hardship. And that might be a hard truth for us to swallow. We don't have to look very far. We could simply turn on the news and see tragedy and hardship. But there's comfort in knowing that God sovereignly works in those situations to accomplish his will that he never has the same callous heart as those who cause suffering. Ishmael is not the chosen seed. God said that time and time again, that Abraham, you'll have a son with Sarah. Ishmael is not the chosen seed, but God remembers his promise that he made in chapter 17 of Genesis. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father 12 princes, and I will make him into a great nation. And God is working to make him a great nation nonetheless. Despite that this was not the chosen son, Isaac, God says, I'm still going to bless him through you, Abraham. Even though you made this mistake, you didn't follow my plan, I'm going to make the promise happen, Isaac, but then I'm even going to bless you even more by giving Ishmael a great nation. Hagar acts rightly in this passage and she secures a wife for Ishmael like Abraham will do in chapter 21 for Isaac. Thus Ishmael receives the gracious benefits even though he is not one of the Lord's people. God sends him off because God has a plan for Isaac to fulfill other promises, not a plan for Ishmael to fulfill those promises. And the story of Ishmael is really the story of the gospel, that we are all wandering, helpless and doomed to separation from God because of our sins, until a heavenly intervention steps in and calls us to Jesus to see that we are sinful and wicked people and that Jesus died for us on the cross to provide for us a much better future than the one we're destined to, an eternity of separation from God and hell. Through the outward circumstances of our life, we know those promises that God says, I'm going to fulfill, I'm going to complete the work I've done in you. Through the outward circumstances might testify otherwise, Our lives may not look like what we think they should look like. The Lord's people, God's people, those who believe in Jesus and his death on the cross know that God is their rock and that his promises will sustain us through death for an eternal resurrected life. We might look at our life and it may feel like we're losing the battle. We might look and wonder, why do I keep stumbling, sinning over and over again, even though I ask God to help me to stop sinning in this way. What if we look at our lives and we're like, there is just no hope for me. There's nothing for me in this life. We look around and we're like, when will this pandemic end? It might feel like we're losing the battle, like we're lost in the wilderness without food or water. But what hope do we have? We look to Jesus to sustain us and know that through, through the storms that we go through in this life, God never says it's all going to be roses and dandelions. God says you will be safe for eternity in his arms. Meaning though we may feel like sojourners in this world wandering around, God promises a better life in eternity when he takes us home to be with him in heaven. So we see three movements of grace. God is giving the birth of the long-awaited Isaac, the abandonment and provision of Ishmael, and lastly, we see God's continued faithfulness. Abimelech reappears in today's passage, as Pastor Will preached last week about him, in order to seal a covenant That will prove to be very significant in the Lord's plan of redemption. Isaac's birth progresses Yahweh's promise towards its goal. A holy nation through which the world will be blessed. This covenant with Abimelech in verses 22 through 34 is a substantial step forward in regarding God's covenanted promise to Abraham to provide a land for his people yet again another promise fulfilled. Seeing that Abraham is blessed, Abimelech seeks to make a pact with him. Abimelech looks, he's like, man, Abraham, like everything that he does is just blessed. He has a pattern of success, including the miraculous birth of Isaac. Isaac. And I'm sure that news traveled around the land that Abraham and Sarah in their old age gave birth to a son. And Abimelech looks and says, man, Abraham's having such success. I want to guarantee success for my descendants. Abimelech seems to know that this fortune will continue for the patriarch's children, and he assumes that they might help his own kingdom in the end. Meaning that Abimelech looks at Abraham and sees that there's something unique, something different. He's being blessed for some reason. And that reason is the grinding and the polishing, the ups and downs of old Abraham had been going through for years and years. This friction of adversity had been polishing his soul and it had been becoming a great light to point other people towards God. And we need to ask, as Abraham had been going through all of this and God had been refining him to make, his, make God's name great among the nations, what about us? Do the frictions and adversities of our life point others to the glories of God? Do when other people look at me, do they see a man or a woman who worships the one and only God great god it's kind of like a glow stick if you don't crack it if you don't break it it's useless but in a dark room you break that glow stick and it shines brightly just as so our lives through the difficulties the hardships the grinding the polishing that we go through when people look at us they should see the sinful brokenness of us cast away in the light of Jesus in our lives. People should look at us and see that there's a difference, whether it's how we deal with the loss of a loved one, how we deal with the losing of a job, how we deal with conflict with people we have relations with. What does our response to those situations tell other people about God? God. Abimelech, looking on the outside of Abraham, says there is something significantly different and I'm going to secure good things for my descendants by making a covenant with Abraham that they're going to be gracious to my people. Abraham agrees to this proposed covenant with Abimelech, but not before immediately scolding Abimelech about his servants' seizing of Abraham's well. Abimelech protests His innocence, Abimelech then receives the the lambs that Abraham sets aside to make the promise to say, this is my well that you have given me, which signifies the patriarch indeed dug the well and had legal right to it, verses 26 through 32. After all this time, Abraham finally has physical proof that the Lord is going to give his family the land of Canaan. This well is a significant part of that plan. Like, I dug this well. It is mine. God is going to bless my people through it. Access to water was necessary for life in the land. And so the well enables Abraham to set up a permanent residence there. His days of being a nomad and wandering throughout the land are now over. Moreover, The name of the place, Beersheba, means the well of oath or the well of promises, reminding everyone who used that well in that land that Abraham's family has a just claim to it. Abraham's now seeing the fulfillment of these promises through the birth of Isaac, through the having of this well, the land that has been promised to him. He is seeing that although he's waited such a long time to see this happen, that God has continually proved Himself to be faithful, and that He will accomplish His promises. You might be sitting there and say, "Okay, well, that's really good for Abraham. I'm glad. I'm happy for him. I'm glad we've gone through these 21 chapters of Genesis to see these promises fulfilled for Abraham. But what about myself?" Well, the truth is, is that even when we fail, which we all do, even when we feel like a failure, which sometimes we do, we serve a God that cannot, that will not, that won't fail. We have a God that does not change even though we are such fickle people chasing different treasures around this world. But how do we actually know that? How do we know that God's going to do as he has promised? God's fulfilled promises to Abraham, meaning he got the son, he got the land, but what about me? Because the truth is, is that promise of Isaac is a small foreshadowing of an even greater promise that God made. Way back in Genesis chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, And friends, that promise is the best news because God has fulfilled that promise through the birth, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. It's because of that promise that we find hope to believe the other promises that we find in Scripture. Matthew eleven twenty-eight 28 through 30 says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your soul. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Or Romans ten thirteen, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Or Romans eight thirty eight and 39, for I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything, anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Second Corinthians 4:16 through18, "So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day, for this light, momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory, beyond all compassion as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are not unseen are eternal. Romans 5, 1 through 5, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we also have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we have rejoiced in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that our sufferings produce endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who who has been given to us. And friends, the promises go on and on and on. And how is it that we can find hope in these promises? because the greatest promise of all has been fulfilled, that God sent Jesus to die on the cross for our sins, and that God stands with open arms, ready to forgive and welcome in all those who believe in him. Our promises are meant to be a promotion of our faith. As we see God working, it's meant to bring an encouragement to us, to our hearts, that even though everything in the world may seem like it's burning and blowing up and not going well, that God has a promise that says he will make all things right in the end, that there will be a place of no more sorrow, no more sickness, no more waiting, that we will be with God forever. Maybe one of the most helpful things that I can offer you in light of today's passage is that as you read your Bible, as you come across these promises of God, that you write them down, Let them be a source of comfort and hope because, friends, I can tell you the promises of this world will fail you. The promises of people will fail you. But the promises of God will never fail you. Our security does not reside in the strength of our faith but in the indestructibility of our Savior, meaning that even when we fail, which we will, that God is not moved, that he is not displeased, that he does not cast us aside when we fail, but says, no, you are my child, you are my heir, I will take you home with me. And that is meant to be a comfort and promise that our security does not reside in the strength of my faith, but in the indestructibility of our Savior. Let me leave you with this, Psalm 103, Verses 1 through 5 should be our response. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who he forgives all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good, so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. Let us pray.